0: Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Evergreen. And as usual, other than last week, it's my privilege to share uh, from Scripture today. And, and so we're gonna dive into this love chapter. We're working through a series called Love Is. And so you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And just as you're doing that, I got a couple uh, quick housekeeping things Uh, A few things, actually, as we move forward in our reopening process, our numbers are progressively going up. And so we are in need of people to begin engaging again in the life of the church. And so, uh, you know, you can see worship is stripped down today. uh, And actually, to be honest, that's just plain and simply because of a lack of people being involved in the worship ministries. And so there's times when people are away and different things like that, that we have to maneuver those things. And so we could use more volunteers in that area, as well as the welcome teams. We'd like to get the hub back up and going uh, beyond just the registration process, but actually have ushers and welcoming people and the hub and all of that kind of stuff. And we need you folks to be able to do that with us. And so it's been a great year and a half of consuming and viewing and watching But now we need to transition back into engaging uh, in the life of the church. And so we also need help in the children's ministry area. We could actually, we have space to be able to expand the children's ministry. We've actually been, other than today, we've been maxed out in the amount of kids that we can navigate, uh, that we can legally uh, handle based on Plan to Protect and so until we get more volunteers in the children's ministry area, we're not going to be able to expand and serve our young families that way, which makes it difficult for them to attend. You kind of see how this all works, right? And so uh, we, we need you to become engaged. Uh, a second thing, uh, we will next week, as of next week, uh, if you are attending the in-person service and you want to physically give, so you have an envelope or a check or or whatever, on the outside of the office on the wall, there'll be a black box that's locked uh, that is mounted there, and you would be able to drop off your giving uh, that way. And so, as of next week, if you're doing that in person, uh, physically, you can do it that way. Of course, we always have our online options, which is where the majority of people are giving now. A quick update uh, as well as far as budget tracking. Uh, We are actually tracking about $25,000 behind budget right now. Uh, Now we're moving into the larger giving year, although with this COVID stuff, we don't know what any of that looks like. Uh, And so I would encourage you, just because of COVID, our generosity and our giving is between you and the Lord, actually. It's not between you and I or the church or whatever. Uh, And so I would encourage you to to just get on your knees and kind of figure that out. That stuff out. Uh, But we just trust that the Lord will provide. And so we've just lowered our our spending and things like that. So we're tracking okay, but we are $25,000 behind budget uh, as of today, uh, give or take. Awesome. How many people are now going to volunteer because of the compelling call for help that I just put out? Awesome. All right, so we got our Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're in the second week of a new series titled, Love Is. Now, Pastor Tamil actually kicked off this series last week. She did a great job introducing to you Paul's love passage, this famous passage in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's really like an overused passage, isn't it? It's overused, it's kind of misunderstood, yet the interesting thing about it is it's central to our understanding of a biblical definition of love. Now, I phrase it as a biblical definition of love because the way that we sort of define love in our culture and in our world today and even in the church is often absent of biblical love. It's a different framework of love, an agape, uh, unconditional love that expects nothing from others but pours out to others. And so this is why this topic is actually so important. It may be over-talked about, but it's actually central to what it means to be a Christian, to what it looks like to be a Christian. And if we were to grasp biblical love and begin to live biblical love, I don't think that we would have the conflict that we currently have in our world, and more importantly, the conflict that we currently have in our Christian culture today. God is love. You've heard that, right? God is love. And so in order to know God, we have to know what love is and how we're to live a life of love. Essentially, if we want to live life as the scriptures call us to, we need to be in constant pursuit of biblical love. So in this series, we're going to tear apart the most famous love chapter in all of scriptures. So we're going to be here a while. As a matter of fact, today we're going to get as far as this. Love is patient. We're not going to go any further than that. I've got an entire 30-minute conversation around that one statement. So let's just quickly reread the passage just so that we can really start to dig into it. I hope that you all brought your Bibles and you can look down rather than up, but it's okay. The screen's here, but I would encourage you to like interact with a physical or a digital Bible on your, uh, but it's good to underline things and kind of dig in and read it for yourself. So Paul says this, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you know any of them people? I might. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal if I do not have love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, like, good for you, that's amazing. And if all I have is, if if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, Like, if you're a really giving, generous person, if I give all that I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. You see, like, Paul's not beating around the bush here, right? He's saying you can do all these things, but if you don't have love, biblical love, you have nothing. You gain nothing. You see, love is patient, he says. He's going to give us the attributes, what love actually looks like. Not something we do out of trying harder, but something that is an actual attribute. This is what it looks like if you're loving. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. This passage is just so rich and so full of amazing stuff, folks, that we can't just graze over it. It shows us these attributes of God's love, the way that God expresses his love to us, and the way that love should look through that expression of God's love. But first, I want to remind us before we kind of get digging into the whole patience side of this. I want to remind us of some important context. A lot of this, Pastor Tamil covered last week, but it's important for us to understand. You ready for this? This is profound. Okay? Chapter 13 is smushed between chapter 12 and 14. That's amazing, isn't it? Chapter 13 comes after chapter 12 and before chapter 14. Now, why does this matter? because it's actually absolutely crucial. It's because of the content of chapter 12 and chapter 14. Paul is talking to a church. Please remember this when you're reading the Bible. Paul is writing a letter to a specific church that's dealing with specific situations. He's navigating something. And this specific church, folks, has fallen into the trap of following human leaders over God. Right? Some follow Apollo, some follow Cephas, some follow Paul. They've fallen into the trap of believing that their I want you to hear this, believing that their outward expression of faith is what matters the most. The way things look, right? If I look righteous, if I look holy, if I practice the spiritual gifts, especially the supernatural gifts, then I must be a good Christian. It looks that way. And this church has fallen into the trap of worrying about how things look rather than where things actually come from. The heart expression of faith that matters the most, our inward expression of faith, our actual relationship with God. So you see, chapters 12 and 14, they talk specifically about spiritual gifts and more specifically about the supernatural gifts. You know, the ones that many in the church are like, if you have these gifts, like you're a somebody, you're important, you're connected deeply to God. You must be a great Christian if you have these gifts like tongues or prophecy or words of knowledge. The problem is, is that the Corinthians, they're abusing these gifts. Remember, they're worried about what it looks like not where it comes from. And so they're using these supernatural spiritual gifts to act like they're close to God, but in reality, there's all kinds of things happening in their church that are proving they're nowhere near God. So in order to bring some correction and teaching around these issues, Paul uses a technique that is actually very common in Pauline literature. And that is, we've simplified this a a little bit, the Oreo cookie outline. That's what he's using here, an Oreo cookie outline, right? You've got the top cookie, you've got the bottom cookie with some amazing icing in the middle. Now, how many of you just like forget the cookie and go straight for the icing, right? That's actually exactly what Paul kind of wants you to do. Like, like it's... The top and the bottom of the cookie with this amazing icing in the middle, right? Chapter 12 is a cookie. Chapter 14 is the cookie. But in the middle is chapter 13 where all the goodness lies, right? All all the sugar, all the, the great stuff. You need the icing in the middle in order to appreciate the goodness of the cookie. So in chapter 12 and chapter 14, in order to understand what lessons he's giving, what instructions he's giving about supernatural gifts, he says, you need to lick the icing. Without the icing, the cookie's no good. It's an Oreo cookie outline. That's a simple way to to think about it. So Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts, and he digresses, so to speak, but it's not really a digression. He just kind of says, oh, wait a minute. If you're going to understand these two things, you need the icing. So let's get into it. And if you don't get love right, is what Paul's saying, then you will never get spiritual gifts right. I'm going to say that again. If you don't get biblical love right, you will never get the supernatural gifts or spiritual gifts right. Instead of the gifts drawing them closer, the church in Corinth, which is what they should do, draw... Yourself and others around you closer to God, they're actually doing more damage than good because they're not being driven by the icing, by the love. So that's why he starts with the concept of you can do all these gifts, like speaking in tongues, prophecy, etc. But if you don't have love, you're nothing but an annoying noise that means nothing. In other words, you're a gonging symbol. You're just annoying. It's not going to be transformative for anybody. Now, Pastor Tamil taught on this last week, so I really want to encourage you, just go back. It's all online. You can watch it again next week, or this week, throughout the week. Um, so, but there's a couple things that I just want to point out just contextually. Paul is saying that it's entirely possible, please hear this, It's entirely possible for you to be doing something that you see as right, but do it without love. So it's entirely possible for you to read your Bible and to have the goal of drawing closer to God, but doing it without love doesn't get you there. It's possible that you could be caring for the poor and the widows and the orphans and the oppressed, but doing it without love, which means nothing. You see what I'm getting at? You can be doing things that you see as the right things, but, Paul says, if you don't add the icing, if that's not the driving force behind it, if that's not the place that it begins, then it's done in human abilities only. In other words, you can have a lot of things, you can do a lot of things with good intentions, but if you don't have love, they're done under human power, not God's power, and you'll notice that they're not life-transforming. You ever wondered that? How come I keep helping this person out and it just doesn't change? The power of God's absent in it. Therefore, they're absent of something more powerful than we can ever imagine, and that's what Paul says, the icing. When someone is, something is done out of love rather than obligation we would probably just call obligation religion. When something is done out of, uh, out of obligation, it looks like it does in the Corinthian church. But when it's done out of love, Paul says it is way more powerful and it actually means something. So Paul teaches this to a church that seems to look like they're doing all the right things but the things that they're doing are not transformative in nature. You see, folks, biblical love is transforming love. Biblical love is never static. It's always active because of where it actually is birthed from, where it flows from. Often churches will ask themselves, you know, are we healthy? Are we a healthy church? And what do we often do? We have these metrics that we, that we weigh like, What does attendance look like? What does finances look like? Like if the church is ahead, we must be doing well. If the church is behind, we mustn't be doing well. How many programs are we running? How many people are attending those programs? Did you call me enough over COVID? Like all of those things are the things that we gauge about whether a church is healthy or not healthy. But Paul says all of those things without love produces nothing but unhealth. This is a dominant theme in Paul's writings. And I think the church lives outside of biblical health most of the time because we don't get it. We don't connect it to our lives. We make God a checklist. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you right now in this moment, and then I'm going to move on with life how I want it to be. Listen to some other passages of how Paul lists attributes of what Christianity actually looks like. The Bible doesn't make this a mystery, folks. The Bible actually says, you want to know what living your life in Christ looks like? You want to know what you should look like as a Christian, how we should be functioning as Christians? You want to know how you're doing in your faith? Well, here it is. For instance, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is Now, I want you to notice the connections, so living a fruitful life and the connection to living a loving life. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Paul's writing this as he contrasts above what the flesh looks like. Paul says that that this is what someone who loves God looks like. But notice the similarities to the Corinthian passage on love. Someone who loves God, in turn, naturally loves others and naturally lives a fruitful life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now, you have to understand Paul is talking to the church in Thessalonian, Thessalonica, and he is talking to home churches. This here folks didn't exist. Right? They were gathering in home churches, kind of like we did over COVID. That was actually the early church, and that's what Paul is talking about, but he says, "And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient, with everyone. Now again, Paul pushes, I I love this, Paul pushes against those who are idle. Those who are doing nothing in the life of the church, Paul's pushing against. He says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. He says, because you need to become encouraging rather than discouraging. Do something, he says, that's helping someone and do it all with radical patience, which is one of Paul's attributes of love, isn't it? To Paul, folks, love is a verb. It's active. It's compelling. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. I love his language here. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, you're like, yes, I'm God's chosen, I'm holy, and I'm dearly loved. And so he says, yes, and this is what you should clothe yourself with. So when you wake up in the morning, what do you do? You put clothing on, right? Right. So when you wake up, you put clothing on. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, And patience. Clothe yourselves. Put this on. This is what you should look like as God's people. Be people who are full of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and be patient with all people. Patience means you're patient with the one you're the most frustrated with. And that's the first attribute that I want to talk about today. Love. Is patient, But before we do that, I want to point out one more thing. And I, I think this is important too. I want to point out what Paul is not doing with all of the passages that I just read to you. Paul is not giving us in any way a to-do list. He's not giving us a to-do list. He's not saying, now go out and try harder at these things. You lack patience. Now go try to be more patient. Work harder at that. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying go out and try to be more kind. He's he's fully aware that us trying will never get us there. Trying is not the concept in scripture. It actually is not what Paul is talking about. Trying minimizes who God is in your life. I'll unpack that as we go today. Paul is also not concerned with the outward behavior. He's actually concerned with where the behavior comes from. What is it rooted in? He's concerned about the nature of our hearts because love flows from the inside out, not the outside in. So if you think you're going to catch love, and ingest it, and then it's gonna happen in your life, that's not the way that scripture explains love. It starts internally at the heart where the Holy Spirit is working on us. The love that Paul is talking about starts with, hear this, please. It starts with knowing God and flows out from there. It's not something that you can just try harder at. Love starts with knowing that you need God in all things in your life. It starts with recognizing that only God's love can make you loving. So when we read love is patient, Don't read it like a to-do list, something that you have to become better at. That's human power. Read it with Paul saying, be transformed by receiving the love of Jesus Christ into your heart. And as you receive that love and grace, the love of God overflows out from your heart and naturally is expressed to others. All right, let's dig into this. Now, this morning, we're gonna have to dig into some Greek. Are you okay with that? Everybody's like, oh no, (laughs) more Greek. Normally, I wouldn't get too deep into this, but actually, understanding the Greek text around this passage, the word patience specifically, is gonna deeply help us understand what Paul is getting at. And so that word patience, is two greek words smushed together you see that often in the greek language macro and themia so macrothemia is the greek word for patience macro literally means long distant long slow and themia you probably know where that word comes from means hot so macrothemia literally means long, hot. Literally, what Paul is saying in the Greek text is love is long or slow to get hot. Essentially, love is slow to anger. You see, patience and anger are interconnected. That's how the Greek reads here. Love is patient when it comes to relationships, how we treat and think about other human beings. Love lacks anger. So this means, if we're going to understand macrothemia, Paul's concepts of patience, we need to look at the three main Greek words that discuss anger. Now, isn't that interesting? In English, we're just angry. Right? We just have one word, angry. We can do some variations. I'm not angry, I'm frustrated, or different things like that. But essentially, in our English language, we have one word that describes anger. In Greek, they have three Main words. So we got to understand how Paul would view through a Greco-Roman lens, through the Greek language of how anger works in order to understand macrothemia. All right. You ready for that? Everybody say macrothemia with me. There you go. You're speaking Greek. Actually, they wouldn't. You're speaking Koine Greek, which is biblical Greek, not the Greek that you would speak in Greece. They'll think you're a moron. So don't go do that and say, my pastor told me so. That's Greek. It's different. Uh, biblical Greek was Koine Greek. Anyway, side note. There's three different Greek words for anger. I think this is going to be really, really cool for you. Orge is the main normal word for anger. And orge simply means that you're upset because something you value was devalued by someone else. that's the kind of anger Orge is, is that somebody devalued something that you value and you get angry at it. It's actually the most natural human anger that exists. And it's not a sinful anger. It's the kind of anger that Jesus uh, expresses in the temple. Okay? It's not seen as sinful. It is seen as simply a human emotion that is actually given to us by God that we need to learn to accept and express. Like for instance, you just bought a brand new car and you decide you're gonna jump over to Walmart to buy some new, uh, or Canadian Tire to buy some new floor mats for your car. And you come out and somebody has keyed your brand new car. They've devalued something that you value. And so you're going to be frustrated with that. You're going to be angry with that. And the Bible says that you embrace that. You actually walk through that emotion. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's another form of anger. So orge is good. It's a good form. It's a, it's a human expression. It's something we need to learn to express and we need to learn to walk through. Don't think that anger orge anger is something that God sees as sin. It's not. This is. I'll explain that. Because there's another form of anger uh, that he talks about in the Greek word. There's kind of a few different variations of this word. So there's paragesmosis, paragesmosis, or, ready for this, para Okay, they're kind of two in the same, just one is a different variation of that. And this word is interesting because it includes the word para and orge together, which Para means down or suppress or to put something deep within. And orge means anger, the good kind of anger. So para-orge means down under or submersed anger, essentially to bury or hide or push one's anger down. So there's orge anger, the kind you need to embrace and walk through and express but then there's para which is the kind that says, no, I'm fine. I'm not upset. I'm perfectly fine. I will bury this. And we often view this as patience, right? But this, this is not a natural way to love. We're not meant as human beings to bury our emotions. Many Christians think that this is being patient with someone, but it's actually Passive aggression. Often, para-orge in scripture is actually translated as bitterness. And so when you take orge and you suppress it, you para it, it leads you to bitterness. You track them with me? This is how the Greek language works. It's actually pretty amazing. Paraorge is sin. Paraorge is sin. Suppressing human emotion and anger is actually not patience. It's sin. Now, the third Greek word for love is themos. What do we get from that word? Thermometer. It literally means hot, like really hot. This is the form of anger that's explosive, like like rage. It's the complete opposite of patience and of love, and it's damaging to everyone around it. So we've got orge, para-orge, and simos. Those are the three different forms of love. Orge is the acceptable form, the natural expression that God's given us. Para-orge is when we suppress That and we act like everything's fine and then it builds up and just creates bitterness. And then simos is when it all comes out and explodes. Do you see how this is working? Let me show you in a passage how this actually works. Ephesians chapter four. Probably many of you have read this passage. Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 to 27. Paul says this, if you anger, do not sin. The anger there is orge. So your natural human anger, make sure it doesn't turn into sin. Orge, if you orge, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Para-orge. And do not give the devil a foothold. So Paul says, your orge is not sin, but when you suppress your orge, it moves into sin and so don't let the sun go down on that that paraorge you see it express your anger it's a natural human disposition so that you don't move into paraorge because paraorge creates bitterness and you don't want to go to bed bitter Embrace it, communicate it, move on, things will be fine. But if you let it fester, this is what will happen. It gives the devil a foothold. I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm I'm fine. I'm just progressively getting bitter and more passive-aggressive. And guess what it opens it up to? The devil getting a foothold in your life. So in Ephesians, what Paul is saying is based on this use of Greek words. When someone causes us to be angry, if we're not honest about it, it will turn into bitterness, and bitterness will become rage, which is exactly how the devil wants you to act. This is why Paul says that when you are loving, it creates patience. When you're not patient with others, it creates a self-centered anger or frustration. Because according to Greek, anger and a lack of patience are tied directly together. I'll prove this to you. Just think about a time where you lost your patience. We probably don't have to think too far back, right? Think about a time when you lost your patience. What were you thinking in that moment? I'm guessing you were not thinking about how the person who made you lose your patience is actually an image bearer of God and has unsurpassable worth. It's probably more about how the person is not fitting into your plan. For me, it's often when I'm driving, right? And I have an appointment to be at. And then I get stuck behind uh, that person who's like extra cautious, you know, like stops at the stop sign and looks that way and that way like five to six times. You know, and if a car is like a thousand meters there, they just wait and let that person go by. And you, you know what I'm saying? You see, this person, if we really look at this, this person who's driving slowly in front of me, who's causing me to lose my patience, is compromising my plan of being on time. They're actually, what's causing me to not be patient is that they are affecting my agenda in a negative way, which causes me to lose my patience. You see, a lack of patience is always about putting ourselves at the center. It's about our agenda and someone getting in the way of our agenda. I'm gonna use a little play on words here. We impose our supposed to's onto others. Do you get it? We impose our supposed supposed to's onto others. Like this person in front of me was supposed to drive faster so that I can get to my meeting on time instead of me just leaving earlier. You see how this works, folks? To Paul, it's our supposed tos that cause us to lack love. Because with our supposed tos, we're projecting our will onto another without considering God's will. Do you follow me? You're supposed to know better. You're supposed to this. You're supposed to that. You're getting in my way of my supposed to. Follow me? Tracking? Give me something. Like, yeah, pastor, we got it. We're getting this. We understand. Patience, right? So when Paul describes the first attribute of love, Many of us are already frustrated with this passage, aren't we? Because it's really easy to grow impatient with someone that annoys us or someone who does something wrong to us. And so how do we live this love that Paul is talking about? Well, the key to understanding patience is to understand where patience comes from in the first place. Remember, I said Paul is not concerned with the actual behavior. We read Scripture so much like that, like it's doing all these behavior correctives. Scripture's not correcting your behavior. Scripture's trying to correct where your behavior comes from. He's concerned over the root of our behavior. You see, true biblical patience flows from a transformed heart. So in order to live the patience that Paul is talking about, we we have to live our lives close to God. Whenever in my life I'm struggling with patience, if I was to actually take an inventory, so we're all going to go through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous here. Right? If I was to... the, the AA is actually the 12 steps all like healthy human beings live by those 12 steps. We just don't like make it as formal as a program would. But anybody who's functioning healthy would be living by these 12 steps. And so you do need to learn to take a personal inventory, be able to take a step back and say, what is this that's driving my behavior? How am I doing in these different areas of my life? And whenever I'm lacking patience, every single time when I take a step back to look at my personal inventory, I very quickly start to realize that I have made God a to-do list rather than a relationship. So I might still be getting up, reading my Bible, doing my devotions. I might be doing all the things that I'm trained to do in the Christian church, but I'm still very distant from God and the outcome of that is behavior issues. I'm lacking patience because I'm distant From God. But see, in the Christian church, we've made it like a to-do list, right? If I to do this and I to do that, and it's not you know, I can I can put my supposed to's on others. That's fine. But that's not actually how scripture works. It's about a transformed heart. And so when we lack patience, it's usually because we're not actually living deeply in God's presence. When our lives are connected to God, will embrace our emotions and are honest with others about how we feel. Scripture describes it as this, that we're living in truth. When we lack love, we struggle with things like patience because we're often hiding our emotions because we're worried about how things look and usually because we're not doing life in the, with God at the center in the moment, we're living in that moment with ourselves At the center. Because the path to a life of love is through first receiving and living under God's love and grace. I've said this before, I really think the Christian church struggles with this. Receiving and living under God's grace, knowing that you are loved, that you are forgiven always. Biblical love cannot be accomplished through trying harder. It can only be lived as an outflow of God's love that you've received. As we live and draw closer to God, he causes our cup to overflow with his love. And then this cup, this natural overflowing of receiving God's love and grace flows into the rest of our lives and the rest of our behaviors. It's all connected, folks, to where you're at in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not a to-do list. This is the root of what Paul's talking about. The only way to living a life of patience is to rest in the patience that we receive from God through his love. It can't be manufactured by human abilities. It has to flow from a transformed heart. A heart that lives in truth. And truth can only be found in Jesus Christ. I hear a lot about truth today, but it's never attached to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. All this crap around us has nothing to do with truth. Jesus is the truth. But if you're distant from him, you'll lack patience, you'll lack kindness. So we know it cognitively, right? We know it, but do we know it? Is it changing us? Are we becoming new? Are we resting in the love that we've received and allowing it to overflow into the worst people we know? So how do we love the way Paul describes it? We live and practice the disciplines that scripture calls us to so that we can draw closer to God each day. When Pastor Tamil comes up and she walks you through a palms down and palms up, she is literally teaching you what the Bible teaches us on how to connect with God when Pastor Tamil puts out practices of spiritual formation. She is literally, that's not us. We're not making this stuff up, folks. That is rooted in scripture. This is how the Bible says you go about drawing closer to God so that you can live agape love. John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. It's not by your amazing obedience to your to-do list. It's not by trying harder. It's none of that. It's how you love one another. Do you see that? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How do we know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Not because you tell us you are. It's based on how you love one another. The love we're called to from one another, for one another flows from our closeness to God. If we struggle with it, God is probably distant in your life. I know that that's my case. Whenever I'm struggling with patience, I'm often distant from God. We do this, folks, by reading Scripture with a posture of listening. Not just a to-do, not just like, Check, I did my reading today. Yay for me, I spent two minutes with Jesus. It's pondering it, it's sitting with it, it's letting it be alive. This is a living book, not a static book that never, like God is not changing, but this book is here to change you. Read scripture with a posture of listening and begin to be transformed by it. It's done by praying and talking honestly to God. Like when you pray, is it actually all your agenda? Is it just like, God, do this for me, God, do that for me. Lord, I need you to do this. What can I get from you today, Jesus? Is that your theology? It's okay to ask God for things, but you also need to praise God for who he is. You also need to ask God what he wants you to do instead of what you want God to do for you. A loving life is a disciplined life that keeps Jesus at the center of all moments of life and then receives God's loving grace. And because of the power of grace and love, we experience, our our love that we experience flows out of us. Naturally. So this morning, before I have Pastor Tamil come up in a moment, I want to challenge you with, with something really simple. A couple of very simple questions. Is God the center of your everything? Is he the center of your everything? Is God at the forefront of your mind when you're walking down the street? Is God at the forefront of your mind when you're in line at Tim Hortons? The simple things in life, do you invite God into them? Are you seeking him in all things and practicing faith through hearing from and talking to God? Receive his love and allow him to overflow your cup and it will lead to a radical patience that you've never experienced before. And this radical patience will cause others, this is what the Bible says, we're often like, how do I do outreach? How do I share my faith? I'll tell you how, get closer to Jesus. Because when you're close to Jesus, you're transformed by his loving grace. And that transformation makes you different than the culture around you, the love. They'll know you by how you love others. And it's only possible through God working in you. This is how they will know you are my disciples. They'll know you by how you love